Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. First Nephi, chapter 18. Well, in this chapter, we find that Lehi and his family are ready to leave the land bountiful. And they come closer still to the promised land by transitioning into a new setting for their exile story. And this is when they put forth into the sea, as it says in verse 8, and boarding their newly completed ship, everyone according to his age, as it says in verse 7, so that they could be driven forth before the wind towards the promised land. Many trials ensue. The challenges that are inherent in a sea voyage of this scope and over such a vast distance are exacerbated by the unrighteousness of Laman and Lemuel. Nephi teaches us much about his ability to wait on the Lord and to endure. We rejoice with him and his family as they finally arrive at the promised land, or as perhaps we should call it, the land of promise which indicates their continued dependence upon God through a covenant relationship after the time that they arrived there. And with Lehi and his family, we happily take stock of the abundant resources of this new land, as they are listed in the last two verses of this chapter. The first section of this chapter, which extends from verses 1 to 4, describe the way that this ship was finished. We learn that Nephi was directed to construct this ship not after the manner of men, as he says twice in verse 2. He tells us how it is that he made it not after the manner of men in verse 3 by explaining that he prayed oft unto the Lord in his mount where he was shown great things. During this time, Lehi also has a channel of communication open with the Lord because he is told in verse 5 that it's time for his family to arise and go down into the ship. They do so in verse 6, carrying many provisions with them and then boarding the ship, everyone according to his age. Verse 7 is included almost parenthetically in the narrative, telling us about the birth of Jacob and his younger brother Joseph in the wilderness. Then in verse 8, we turn back to the boarding of this ship and find that this family puts forth into the sea and they're driven before the wind towards the promised land. Once their voyage begins, Nephi immediately relates an episode in verse 9 that has to do with the exceeding rudeness of his brothers and the sons of Ishmael and also their wives. They justify their actions in verse 10 by expressing their disagreement 
that Nephi should be a ruler over them. And then in verse 11, Laman and Lemuel specifically do something that they've done before to Nephi. They bind him with cords. This time, however, unlike the incident related in 1 Nephi chapter 7, Nephi is not immediately delivered from these cords. He suffers great pain and soreness, as he says in verse 15, that lasted for four days. We also find in verse 12 that the Liahona stops working during this time. Nephi's brothers finally release him from his bands in verse 15, apparently not out of pity or mercy, but because they were afraid they would perish. In contrast to that attitude, however, in verse 16, we find that Nephi, even in the midst of his trials, did praise the Lord all the day long and did not murmur against the Lord because of his afflictions. The afflictions of others on this voyage are then mentioned in subsequent verses. Nephi's parents describe their grief and sorrow and that their gray heads were about to be brought down to lie low in the dust. And he also mentions that Jacob and Joseph were grieved because of the afflictions of their mother, and that Nephi's wife shed many tears on his behalf. At this point in the voyage, the Liahona begins to work again, and Nephi guides the ship, as it says in verse 22, and in his typical understated quality, we discover that this party did arrive at the promised land in verse 23. Undoubtedly, there were other unmentioned miracles of navigation that would have landed this ship at the exact place that the Lord intended. Beyond land of promise, that place is not named here. But in verse 24 and 25, to end the chapter, we discover that it's a place of great abundance. It has fertile soil because we can see that the seeds that they brought from Jerusalem did grow exceedingly. And we know, too, in verse 25, that there were beasts in the forest of every kind. Adding to this picture of agricultural abundance, we end the chapter by finding that this place also has all manner of ore, both of gold and of silver and of copper. With that introduction, let's return to the beginning of the chapter and begin with verse 1. And it came to pass that they did worship the Lord and did go forth with me, and we did work timbers of curious workmanship. And the Lord did show me from time to time after what manner I should work the timbers of the ship. So here we are in Bountiful, in the final phases of Nephi's shipbuilding. In the previous chapter, he found ore, he made bellows, and he made a fire, and ultimately made tools. Now as we move to the beginning of this chapter, we discover that now he's fashioning timbers in a unique way. He tells us in verse 2, Now I, Nephi, did not work the timbers after the manner which was learned by men. Neither did I build the ship after the manner of men, but I did build it after the manner which the Lord had shown unto me, wherefore it was not after the manner of men. The way in which the Lord did show Nephi from time to time how to proceed in verse 1 is instructive. And it's something that Elder Bednar discussed in a general conference talk called The Spirit of Revelation. He said, most frequently, revelation comes in small increments over time and is granted according to our desire, worthiness, and preparation. 
Nephi did not learn how to build a ship of curious workmanship all at once. Rather, Nephi was shown by the Lord from time to time after what manner he should work the timbers of the ship. Here is an expansion of that point by Elder Bednar in the same talk. He says, Such communications from Heavenly Father gradually and gently distill upon our souls as the dew from heaven. And that's a quote from section 121, verse 45. This pattern of revelation tends to be more common than rare and is evident in the experiences of Nephi as he tried several different approaches before successfully obtaining the brass plates of Laban. Ultimately, he was led by the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing beforehand the things which he should do. And he did not learn how to build a ship of curious workmanship all at one time. Rather, Nephi was shown by the Lord from time to time after what manner he should work the timbers of the ship. Both the history of the church and our personal lives are replete with examples of the Lord's pattern for receiving revelation, line upon line, precept upon precept. For example, the fundamental truths of the restored gospel were not delivered to the prophet Joseph Smith all at once in the sacred grove. These priceless treasures were revealed as circumstances warranted and as the timing was right. President Joseph F. Smith explained how this pattern of revelation occurred in his life As a boy, I would frequently ask the Lord to show me some marvelous thing, in order that I might receive a testimony. But the Lord withheld marvels from me and showed me the truth, line upon line, until he made me to know the truth from the crown of my head to the soles of my feet, and until doubt and fear had absolutely purged from me. He did not have to send an angel from the heavens to do this, nor did he have to speak with the trump of an archangel. By the whisperings of the still, small voice of the Spirit of the living God, he gave to me the testimony I possess, and by this principle and power he will give to all the children of men a knowledge of the truth that will stay with them, and it will make them to know the truth as God knows it, and to do the will of the Father as Christ does it. And no amount of marvelous manifestations will ever accomplish this. That's unquote from President Joseph F. Smith. Then Elder Bednar says, We as members of the Church tend to emphasize marvelous and dramatic spiritual manifestations so much that we may fail to appreciate it and may even overlook the customary pattern by which the Holy Ghost accomplishes His work. It's good to consider, then, the gradual way in which Nephi was instructed to build this ship because we know that at other times he was spoken to directly by the Lord This helps us understand, and I think Elder Bednar's words help us understand that our own incremental and sedimentary progress, line upon line and precept upon precept, is normal, and it is according to the Lord's pattern. If we can draw the comparison between the mountain that Nephi went to oft in verse 3, and I think we can, then we receive another important clue as to how it is that we can remain in dialogue with God. Verse 3, And I, Nephi, did go into the mount oft, and I did pray oft unto the Lord, wherefore the Lord showed unto me great things. We know that the Lord has showed great things unto Nephi previously, and of course he recorded those in his vision between chapters 11 through 14. So the great things here seem to have more to do with temporal affairs but he certainly would have also received spiritual instruction in these trips to the mount. 
The prophet Jeremiah seemed to understand this same pattern. In Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 3, he said, Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and shew thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Ogden and Skinner have this to say about Nephi's frequent trips to the mountain. Nephi received blueprints and technical revelation from the master shipbuilder. The young prophet made frequent hikes to his private spot on the mountain, poured out his soul in prayer, and was blessed with great views. The Lord showed unto me great things, he said. That passage has at least two meanings. In the temple, the mountain of the Lord, God opens up to all of us the views of great things. Also, when we climb our personal mountains, challenges, trials, difficulties, struggles, hardships, and afflictions, He can teach us great things. Verse 4, And it came to pass that after I had finished the ship, according to the word of the Lord, my brethren beheld that it was good, and that the workmanship thereof was exceedingly fine. Wherefore they did humble themselves again before the Lord. We know uh, from the previous chapter that despite their recalcitrance, Nephi's antagonistic brothers, in addition to those who were allied with him the entire time, such as Sam, did ultimately have a hand in the building of this ship. We can guess then that they would have felt a measure of satisfaction with its completion. But again, we read here that they humbled themselves before the Lord. It seems like they usually were humbled when evidence was this tangible. We can also guess that at this point they wanted to board it because it would take them to the next phase of their journey and that they wanted to go to the promised land. I think this would have been a humbling moment in particular for Nephi's antagonists because they put themselves in a particular position in the previous chapter saying that Nephi could not build a ship, that this thing was not possible. And now here it is in its completion. It might remind us of Pharisees and scribes and others who were antagonistic to Jesus of Nazareth, who believed and said that he could not do the things that he claimed that he could do. Yet when the time appointed did arrive, he most certainly did rise again from the tomb. It might remind us that we don't want to go on record as saying that a prophet can't do something that is seemingly impossible. Because when we do, it is tantamount to saying that the Lord can't do something that is seemingly impossible. Now that the ship is complete, Lehi receives direction that it's time to leave Bountiful. This is clearly the order of things, as we can see at previous points in the story, that once Lehi receives direction of this type, then the family moves on. Verse 5 says, And it came to pass that the voice of the Lord came unto my father that we should arise and go down into the ship. McConkie and Millet take note of the two channels of communication that are opened between the Lord and Nephi and the Lord and Lehi. They say it was for Nephi to receive revelation on the building of the ship and for his father to receive the revelation that the time had come for the family to begin their journey. In the economy of heaven, revelations are granted according to one's stewardship or right to receive it. Revelations that effectually place someone in a position to manipulate or dominate others do not have heaven as their source. 
Now this long-awaited time has finally come, and we read in verse 6, And it came to pass that on the morrow, after we had prepared all things, much fruits and meat from the wilderness, and honey in abundance, and provisions according to that which the Lord had commanded us, we did go down into the ship with all our loading, and our seeds, and whatsoever thing we had brought with us, every one according to his age. Wherefore we did all go down into the ship with our wives and our children." Notice the similarity in language when Noah and his family boarded the ark in Genesis chapter 7, verse 7. And Noah went in, and his sons, and his wife, and his sons' wives with him, into the ark because of the waters of the flood. Out of Eldon Rick's uh, Book of Mormon commentary, we can read something about this little detail that they entered the ship according to their age. He says, quote, It was a sacred moment and a breathlessly exciting one. After years of overland travel, they were now actually going to brave the timeless challenge of the seas. It was their final great test of faith, and they were ready for the test. For reasons not apparent to one reared in a Western tradition, they seemed to have sought expression for the dignity and solemnity of the occasion by forming a ceremonial procession and filing aboard their ship according to the ancient patriarchal order. Nephi's allusion to the detail marks the outcropping of a Hebrew custom at a point in the narrative where we least expected it. Then we get this parenthetical verse that seems like it could have been inserted into other points in the narrative. Verse 7, And now my father had begat two sons in the wilderness. The elder was called Jacob, and the younger, Joseph. We'll learn more about these sons as the chapter continues, and then, of course, In 2 Nephi, we'll learn more still and how it is that Joseph, through his name, has a special connection to Joseph of Egypt, but also projecting forward to a great prophet named Joseph who was to come. Reynolds and Sojal, in their commentary on the Book of Mormon, suggest that perhaps others were born during this time as well. They say, we are here informed that two sons, Jacob and Joseph, were born to Lehi in the wilderness. They were eight years in the wilderness. Those that entered the ship were Lehi and Sariah, his wife, Laman and his wife, Lemuel and his wife, Sam and his wife, Nephi and his wife, two sons of Ishmael and their families, Zoram and his wife, Jacob and Joseph, and others who may have been born in the wilderness. Elder George Reynolds estimates the entire number that landed in the land of promise at from 60 to 80 souls. Verse 8, The voyage has begun, and it came to pass, after we had all gone down into the ship, and had taken with us our provisions and things which had been commanded us, we did put forth into the sea, and were driven forth before the wind towards the promised land. So now the backdrop of this story changes from the land bountiful to the sea. Verse 9, And after we had been driven forth before the wind for the space of many days, and by the way here, we can't help but think of the Jaredites in either chapter 6 verse 5, it says, And it came to pass that the Lord God caused that there should be a furious wind blow upon the face of the waters towards the promised land, and thus they were tossed upon the waves of the sea before the wind. Now continuing with Nephi's words in verse 9, Behold, my brethren and the sons of Ishmael, And also their wives began to make themselves merry, insomuch that they began to dance and to sing, and to speak with much rudeness, 
Yea, even that they did forget by what power they had been brought thither, yea, they were lifted up unto exceeding rudeness. So once they set sail, Nephi immediately relates this episode. The rejoicings of this family are interrupted by this episode, and for us as readers, our rejoicings are interrupted, and we read again of the conflict between Nephi's brothers and himself. Here's something from the Institute Manual um, from this verse. Some may erroneously conclude from 1 Nephi 18, verse 9, that the Lord does not approve of dancing or singing. Nephi said twice that they erred when their dancing and singing led them to speak with much rudeness. The word rude refers to being harsh, vulgar, or coarse. The Lord has stated that he approves of proper dancing and singing. And there are a couple uh, scriptural passages that are quoted there in Psalm and also Doctrine and Covenants section 136. Note from these scriptures that we may praise the Lord through dancing and singing. Satan can use dancing or music, however, as a means of corruption and loss of the spirit. This is why church leaders caution us about the kinds of music we listen to and how we dance. Clearly, the dancing and singing that was happening on the ship at this time was not the good kind. Verse 10, And I, Nephi, began to fear exceedingly, lest the Lord should be angry with us and smite us because of our iniquity, that we should be swallowed up in the depths of the sea, Wherefore I, Nephi, began to speak to them with much soberness, but behold, they were angry with me, saying, We will not that our younger brother should be a ruler over us. We're going to talk in a moment about why Nephi's brothers were particularly indignant over this, that Nephi would be a ruler over them. Before we do that, however, I want to look at the word us in verse 10, uh, where Nephi says the Lord should be angry with us. We know that Nephi is highly favored of the Lord and that he has been in a state of constant communication with him throughout the record. However, it seems almost here that he seems uh, he seems to feel somewhat complicit or responsible for the way things have turned out on this ship. This gives us an interesting uh, insight into the way that a prophet is an advocate for his people, the people over whom he has stewardship and how it certainly isn't enough for these prophets to be the only ones that have attained the Lord's good graces. Genesis chapter 18, verse 23, recounts an incident that takes place between Abraham and God that reflects this same relationship. It says, And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there be fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are therein? So Nephi is concerned about being drowned or swallowed up in the depths of the sea as a result of the unrighteousness on his ship. And here we can see Abraham's concern for the unrighteousness of Sodom. And he, he's negotiating with the Lord in a very interesting way. Verse 25, he says, That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked. And that the righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. And Abraham answered and said, Behold now, I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. 
That's a beautiful expression of humility as Abraham approaches the Lord. Then in verse 28, Peradventure there shall lack five of the fifty righteous. Wilt thou destroy all the city for lack of five? And he said, If I find there forty and five, I will not destroy it. And he spake unto him yet again and said, Peradventure there shall be forty found there. And he said, I will not do it for forty's sake. And he said unto him, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Peradventure there shall thirty be found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Behold now, I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord. Peradventure there shall be twenty found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for twenty's sake. Now the negotiations continue down to ten. And Abraham says, And he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak yet but this once. Peradventure ten shall be found there. And he said, meaning the Lord said, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. And the Lord went his way as soon as he had left communing with Abraham, and Abraham returned unto his place. Again, Nephi gives us great insight into the role of a prophet as a mediator between those over whom he has stewardship and God. That role, of course, is a type of the great mediator who stands before the God of justice in all our steads. Back to this statement at the end of verse 10, where Nephi's brothers say, We will not that our younger brother shall be a ruler over us. It sounds a bit like Genesis chapter 37, verse 10. Uh, and, and this involves Joseph of Egypt, or more accurately, Joseph, the son of Jacob. And he told it to his father and to his brethren, and his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee to the earth? No one here was happy about Joseph's dream that said that ultimately others would make obeisance to him. We don't have any evidence in the scriptures that that's a predicament that Joseph asked for or that it is one here that Nephi particularly asked for. Daniel Ludlow, in his companion to the book, to your study of the Book of Mormon, gives us insight into the ire of Nephi's brothers and also to Joseph's brothers in that um, passage I just read. He says, Why do Laman and Lemuel constantly claim a higher authority than Nephi? In the ancient world, the firstborn son has special rights and privileges. This is sometimes called the law of primogenitor and was likely part of the culture of Lehi and his group. In only one chapter of 1 Nephi 18, we find at least three examples of the practice of this law. One, Nephi's position of leadership was objected to by Laman and Lemuel, who were his elder brothers. Two, despite the strong faith and numerous religious experiences of Nephi, most of the revelations from the Lord concerning the colony continued to come through his father, Lehi. Three, Lehi and his group entered the ship everyone according to his age. Consistent with their character, then, at other times in this story, Laman and Lemuel, in their frustration, turn to violence and to compulsion. And we read in verse 11, And it came to pass that Laman and Lemuel did take me and bind me with cords. That's the exact same verbiage, by the way, as in 1 Nephi chapter 7, verse 16, when they bound Nephi with cords. 
Uh, however, there there is not to be any immediate delivery for Nephi in this instance, as we'll learn later. Now the verse goes on, And they did treat me with much harshness. Nevertheless, the Lord did suffer it, that he might show forth his power unto the fulfilling of his word which he had spoken concerning the wicked. Nephi seems to be preempting our discovery as readers that he isn't going to be delivered immediately from his bonds. And, and we know that he was previously, in the, and we know that his faith is immense. And so we might wonder why he was not delivered. Something similar happened to Alma and Amulek when they were bound. And Amulek suggested that Alma stretched forth his hand exercise the power of God and relieve them of their bondage. But Alma said this, The Spirit constraineth me. This is Alma chapter 14, verse 11. The Spirit constraineth me that I must not stretch forth mine hand. For behold, the Lord receiveth them up unto himself in glory, and he doth suffer that they may do this thing, or that the people may do this thing unto them. Now, the the pronouns being used here have to do with uh, the violence uh, and death that was being perpetrated upon the innocent by the people of Ammonihah. According to the hardness of their hearts, that the judgments which he shall exercise upon them in his wrath may be just, and the blood of the innocent shall stand as a witness against them, yea, and cry mightily against them at the last day. Verse 12, Nephi tells us, And it came to pass that after they had bound me insomuch that I could not move, the compass which had been prepared of the Lord did cease to work. Wherefore, they knew not whither they should steer the ship, insomuch that there arose a great storm, yea, a great and terrible tempest, and we were driven back upon the waters for the space of three days, and they began to be frightened exceedingly, lest they should be drowned in the sea. Nevertheless, they did not loose me. Laman and Lemuel and whoever else is allied with them have made us incredulous at several points in this story. If marvelous signs from heaven are what it takes to make a person repent as a form of extrinsic motivation, they would have changed long ago. But instead we're seeing that on the ship, there's this same malevolent spirit. We can only imagine their degree of depravity here and really the dysfunctionality of this situation where they had in such close quarters to ignore Nephi's cries, the cries of his parents, the cries of his wife, and undoubtedly others. Well, verse 14, And on the fourth day, which we had been driven back, the tempest began to be exceedingly sore. 15, And it came to pass that we were about to be swallowed up in the depths of the sea, and after we had been driven back upon the waters for the space of four days, my brethren began to see that the judgments of God were upon them, And that almost seems tongue-in-cheek. My brethren began to see that the judgments of God were upon them, since to Nephi and to us that's so patently obvious. And that they must perish, save that they should repent of their iniquities. Wherefore they came unto me, and loosed the bands which were upon my wrists. And behold, they had swollen exceedingly. And also mine ankles were much swollen, and great was the soreness thereof. Nephi seems to be a master of humble understatement, and for him to say that great was the soreness thereof, and to say that his ankles were much swollen, we can take that to mean that his suffering on this occasion was almost unimaginable. As we read this, I think our hearts should be swollen, much swollen, with gratitude towards Nephi for his example of steadiness.
and incredible endurance during this time, where he says in verse 16, Nevertheless, I did look unto my God, and I did praise him all the day long, and I did not murmur against the Lord because of mine afflictions. So that's where Nephi directed his gaze, and because he did, and because he says this in verse 16, he causes us to look unto our God and to look forward to this suffering servant that Nephi will teach us about later through Isaiah and the way in which he would be bound on our behalf and that he too would never murmur because of his afflictions. We have other scriptural examples of prophets who endured terrible suffering. We might think of the prophet Joseph Smith in the Liberty Jail, for example. The insights that Joseph writes in section 121 in particular that come from that experience are of great value to us. Well, we might ask here why it is that Nephi's brethren finally relented. It seems obvious, but it's just worth looking at this again. Here's some commentary by Brant Gardner who says, The storm amounts to a spiritual sledgehammer, finally getting the brothers' attention. Only when the situation was absolutely desperate did they make a connection between their plight and the binding of Nephi. They may not even have seen that binding Nephi caused the problem, only that he had demonstrated a connection with Jehovah in the past and that they now needed divine intervention. Before Nephi directs our attention to a time when things took a turn for the better in this voyage, he tells us more about the sufferings of those who are around him. Verse 17, Now my father Lehi had said many things unto them, and also unto the sons of Ishmael. But behold, they did breathe out much threatenings against anyone who should speak for me. Breathe out much threatenings is a very interesting choice of words, I think. It doesn't sound completely iron-fisted, but it sounds a little bit more subtle that Nephi's brothers were subtle and were using political alliances, perhaps, to restructure the leadership hierarchy that was on the ship at this time. And my parents being stricken in years and having suffered much grief because of their children, they were brought down, yea, even upon their sick beds, Because of their grief and much sorrow and the iniquity of my brethren, they were brought near even to be carried out of this time to meet their God. Yea, their gray hairs were about to be brought down to lie low in the dust. Yea, even they were near to be cast with sorrow into a watery grave. That's um, terribly sad and, and beautiful poetic language from Nephi. This same poetic gift will manifest for us later when we study the words of Nephi's little brother, Jacob. Verse 19, And Jacob and Joseph also, being young, having need of much nourishment, were grieved because of the afflictions of their mother, and also my wife with her tears and prayers, and also my children, did not soften the hearts of my brethren that they would loose me. Here, of course, we also have it confirmed that Nephi and his wife had children, plural, that would have been born at some point during their exile in the wilderness, and that they were old enough to try on their own accord to soften the hearts of their uncles. Verse 20, returning back to this idea of a spiritual sledgehammer that was suggested by Brant Gardner, And there was nothing save it were the power of God, which threatened them with destruction, could soften their hearts. 
Wherefore, when they saw that they were about to be swallowed up in the depths of the sea, they repented of the things which they had done, insomuch that they loosed me. And it came to pass, after they had loosed me, behold, I took the compass, and it did work whither I desired it. So we've come to the end of that terrible episode, and that very instructive episode for us. And the storm has ceased, and now... Uh, the Leahona is working once again. Nephi says, And it came to pass that I prayed unto the Lord. And after I had prayed, the winds did cease, and the storm did cease, and there was great calm. We can imagine how anxious Nephi's fellow travelers would have been to see him praying to the Lord, that uh, the Lord's good graces would return to this voyage, and that they would once again be safe. They trusted Nephi. Or I should say, those who trusted Nephi would have looked to this prayer as a critical turning point and as a point of deliverance. Similar language and a similar feeling comes from the Jonah account. In Jonah chapter 1, verse 6, it says, So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if it so be that God will think upon us, that we perish not. So again, verse 21 tells us that the result of this was that the storm did cease and there was a great calm. So we can also tell from verse 22 that there really wasn't a successful takeover and that the leadership structure on the ship stayed the same because, as it says in verse 22, and it came to pass that I, Nephi, did guide the ship that we sailed again towards the promised land. Verse 23 has this much, much anticipated arrival since it is the resolution of the dissonance that we have felt ever since Lehi was told to leave his home in Jerusalem and take a journey to the promised land. They're finally there. Verse 23, And it came to pass that after we had sailed for the space of many days, and that would have been many days, We did arrive at the promised land, and we went forth upon the land, and did pitch our tents, and we did call it the promised land. We can pause here for a moment and offer some conjecture as to where the promised land may have been. Before we do that, however, these framing comments from Anthony W. Ivins of the First Presidency in 1929, are still very relevant today, and I think can guide us in our attitudes towards the theories that are posited with respect to Book of Mormon geography. He says, there is a great deal of talk about the geography of the Book of Mormon. Remember, again, this is 1929. Where was the land of Zarahemla? Where was the city of Zarahemla? And other geographic matters. It does not make any difference to us. There has never been anything yet set forth that definitely settles that question. So the church says, we are just waiting until we discover the truth. All kinds of theories have been advanced. I have talked with at least half a dozen men that have found the very place where the city Zarahemla stood, and notwithstanding the fact that they profess to be Book of Mormon students, they vary a thousand miles apart in the places they have located. We do not offer a definite solution. Again, I think this is a helpful framing comment for us, and Nephi will talk in the next chapter, as he did in chapter 9, 
about what he chooses to include and doesn't choose to include in the large plates versus the small plates. But we know that the fullness of his intent is to lead us as readers to the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. That, I believe, is the guiding star that we should navigate by as we move through the Book of Mormon in our own reading journey through the Book of Mormon, as opposed to the geographical markers that are provided. Let's read this from Susan Easton Black. She said, It should be noted again that there is no official church stand on where Lehi and his family landed in the Americas. Now, she arrives at that conclusion, however, with some interesting details. Quote, Extant historical documents suggest possible landing sites, none of which have been verified. In the papers of Frederick G. Williams, a counselor to the prophet Joseph Smith, is found the following, quote, Lehi's travels, revelations to Joseph Seer, the course that Lehi and his family traveled from Jerusalem to the place of their destination. They traveled nearly a south-southeast direction until they came to the 19th degree of north latitude, then nearly east to the Sea of Arabia, then sailed in a southeast direction and landed on the continent of South America in Chile, 30 degrees south latitude. On the last page of John M. Bernheisel transcript of the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible is found, quote, The course that Lehi traveled from the city of Jerusalem to the place where he and his family took ship. They traveled nearly a south latitude, then nearly east to the Sea of Arabia, then sailed in a southeast direction and landed on the continent of South America in Chile, 30 degrees south latitude. There was an editorial, though, as Dr. Black points out in September 15th of 1842 in the Times and Seasons, that said that, quote, Lehi landed a little south of the Isthmus of Darien, and, and that's in Panama. Again, I think these details are of interest and they are provided in the record, and so it behooves us to connect dots where we can, geographically. But with Nephi, the fullness of our intent as readers should be that the book brings us to the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now this chapter ends with verses 24 and 25, and they give us an assessment of this new land. Verse 24, And it came to pass that we did begin to till the earth, and we began to plant seeds. Yea, we did put all our seeds into the earth, which we had brought from the land of Jerusalem. And it came to pass that they did grow exceedingly, wherefore we were blessed in abundance. Verse 25, And it came to pass that we did find upon the land of promise as we journeyed in the wilderness. So notice there, by the way, that they journeyed uh, from the shore, that there were beasts in the forest of every kind, both the cow and the ox, and the ass and the horse, and the goat and the wild goat, and all manner of wild animals, which were for the use of men. And we did find all manner of ore, both of gold and of silver and of copper. Reynolds and Sojal expand on this idea that they journeyed in the wilderness in verse 25. They say, As we journeyed in the wilderness, I understand this to mean that as soon as Lehi and his company had taken care of their first harvest, they continued their journey in the wilderness, which in this case would mean the bench land or the mountain regions. So later, we'll learn about the land of their first inheritance in the Americas. And uh, this, this makes us see that it may not have been exactly at the same place where they landed in the ship, but it may have been inland by a ways. The description of horses in verse 25 
has been a, a point of controversy in the past when it was a widely held archaeological belief that there was no such thing as horses on the American continents. That has since been debunked. It's something that uh, Elder Callister talks about in his book called The Case for the Book of Mormon, which is very interesting. And, and here's something from Joy M. Osborne. She says, Fossil remains of true horses differing but very slightly from the smaller and inferior breeds of those now existing are found abundantly in deposits of the most recent geological age in almost every part of America. She does go on to explain, however, that there doesn't seem to be evidence for any horses having existed during the time of the Spanish conquest. These details, then, in verse 24 and 25, that show that Lehi's family were blessed in abundance, as it says in verse 24, bring us to the end of the storytelling narrative for a while in this record. We'll pick it back up in Second Nephi chapter 5. For now, however, we can rejoice with Nephi and Lehi and their families that this Exodus narrative that was introduced in 1 Nephi chapter 2 is now complete and that they have arrived at this land of promise. This brings us to the end of 1 Nephi chapter 18. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives and, most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.